Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is a podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by Bucks Island Marine. At Bucks Island, you can check out the full list of inventory from new and used bass, pontoon, and bow rider style boats. New and used motors as well as kayaks for sale. They love trade-ins, which provides a steady stream of used boats. They can rig your boat at their 18-bay service department or ship your new motor anywhere in the United States. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. They have factory trained and certified technicians. You can visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And also, SunSouth. Spring is the season for doers, and SunSouth has quality John Deere tractors and mowers to help you tackle your terrain faster, more efficiently, and more affordably. During the spring sales event at SunSouth, save even more with 0% financing on select new John Deere tractors and mowers. Plus, get discounts on parts to keep your equipment running at its best. Hurry in during the spring sales event at SunSouth. Equipment for those that do. Some restrictions apply. See dealer for details. Expires March 31st, 2021. I'm your host, Joe Bayer, here with my co-host, Clint Flowers. And Clint, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about quail habitat. And one of the biggest, most important things that they recommended on that show was doing prescribed burning on your property. For somebody who hasn't done it or hasn't been involved a lot, burning your property can be a little bit intimidating. When was the first burn you ever went on? Uh, I was a kid. I, you know, I grew up under a consultant forester. And uh, so I got to tag along on a lot of burns and prey jobs and, and reforestation jobs. So I've, I saw a lot growing up and uh, learned from that, but it's still intimidating to me. To, to this day, there's just so much that can, can go wrong quickly if you're not prepared. You know, you've been going since you were a kid, being the son of a consultant forester, it still can be an intimidating task to think about setting acres of woods on fire. Really, the goal of the show today is to get into why you want to burn, number one, but then the considerations that you've got if you want to, to do a prescribed fire, controlled burn on your property, how to do it right, when you shouldn't do it, areas maybe you, you should or shouldn't do it. To do that, we've got two experts on the subject. We've got Carl Childry with the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, and we got Brian Shepard with Brush Clearing Services. So guys, welcome to Hunting Land. Thanks for having us. Yes, so, sir. Thank you, Joe, for having us. First off, you know, Carl, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do with the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources and some of your experience with prescribed fire? I'm a manager at uh, Barber WMA. We have about, it's almost 30,000 acres um, up here. And our main goal here is to, to provide hunting and, and good hunting for the for the public. And we do everything from... You know, we do a lot of controlled burns, which is what we're going to talk about in a little bit, but we do food plot planning, you know, all kinds of timber management. We have 200 and almost 220 miles of interior road that we keep up every year, which keeps us busy. And then, you know, we we do outreach stuff with local landowners and, and helping them kind of make similar decisions that we're making on the WMA about habitat and you know, whatever kind of wildlife they're trying to target to help them reach their goals. And Brian, why don't you introduce us to brush clearing services? I know y'all are involved in lots of different types of habitat work, including controlled burns. Tell us about what you do. 
Yes, sir. Uh, we're a uh, environmental land clearing company established in 2005. Uh, and since then, we've worked with many state and federal agencies for uh, mechanical habitat restoration and fuel load reduction. And we work closely with uh, with, with state and federal biologists, foresters, and uh, everything we do is just through a plan, through a management habitat management plan. We work closely with, with these agencies and with their biologists to prescribe a treatment uh, that is going to be first and foremost beneficial to the resource. That's our number one concern always is what's best for the resource first. And of course, usually if you're doing what's best for the resource, it's going to fall in play with managing target species, different wildlife or endangered species. And of course, ultimately trying to make a better hunting experience for people. So most of our work is, is, is on the mechanical side. Uh, we always like to see prescribed fire being the first choice. Then a lot of times we run into situations where fire, fire exclusion has been, you know, it, it's, it, you know, they haven't used fire in so many years that you start getting a, a mid story that may not be mercantable, meaning you can't sell the wood or sell the timber. And so that's where we come into play. We come in there with our big specialized forest forestry uh, masticators as they'd call them come in there and do uh, mid-story reduction and a lot of times we'll take that material down to where it'll get to the point where I mean fire will pick it up and burn it better and then ultimately at that point you can you can control moving forward using fire so it's just another tool in that whole this whole uh, habitat management process and obviously you know fire is is the the best and, and the cheapest but in some cases it's not always available to be able to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Clint, I'd say that 90% of the properties I'm on are not being burned. They're not in any type of a controlled burn program. I don't see it as super prevalent. And I wish it was. What do you see? I mean, do you see the majority of your properties are in some type of a controlled burn program or, or the other way around, like what I'm seeing, where it's just not being done? Uh, it's picked up in the last few years as, as the programs have promoted it, but it's definitely not a majority. And it depends on the situation, whether we've got a absentee landowner or somebody that's been actively managing their property. But the tracks that have been put into some form of rotation, they're a better looking property aesthetically and, and from a wildlife standpoint, they tend to sell for more as well. Carl, talk about the benefits of controlled burns. I mean, I, I don't understand why we don't see more of it. I mean, we you guys do a lot of it, but but why do you do it? I mean, you know, Brian was saying, you know, it's, it's the cheapest, probably cheapest, best tool for, for wildlife habitat improvement. What's the real benefit of burning your property? Yeah, I mean, kind of depending on your goals, you know, they might, the answer might vary there a little bit, but it's just, main thing like Brian said, it's just this overall cheaper and your overall benefit from whether you're trying to, you know, manage for turkey or deer or quail or whatever it is, or if it's just timber management, you just have an across the board gain by using this tool. You know, you're going to gain light to the ground, which is going to promote growth for different forbs and things like that for, for turkeys, deer, quail, all, all of the above. And it's going to improve just general habitat. You know, whether it's bedding, browsing, those sorts of things, you're going to, you're going to gain a lot of a lot from that. You gain a little little bump in your in your timber growth rate as well, typically, don't you? You do. You're just eliminating competition. You know, you've seen stands that 
have been unburned and and we actually deal with that some here on the WMA. We've got a timber lease that's um owned by Warehouser. And this, I think it was like a 50-year lease, and we have 12 years left on it, but that place hadn't seen fire in the entirety of that lease. And you can go up there now, and it's just you know, the thin rows in the pines. They're so thick, sweet gum between the first thinning and the clear cut, it's almost hard to walk through. And eliminating that competition, you're absolutely going to gain, gain ground in timber production. Brian, you were talking about reducing that fuel load. I mean, is it a is it a safety issue too to not burn your property? I mean, what you see what's happening out west in California with you know these wildfires getting away from everybody, they can't stop them. I mean, to me, it seems like a safety issue not to burn. It is a safety issue not to burn, and and you know it's 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 evident now. You think about three, four, five hundred years ago, fire especially throughout the southeast was was very prevalent it's what managed all the ecosystems of course 300 years ago it was wasn't densely populated with people like it is now so you know we, we run into two problems here we one by not burning we're creating increased fuel loads on these places we're not managing the habitat like we should we've got a reduction in timber production as we've discussed but there is also a liability with burning because you know, we've got such urbanized areas now, it's hard to burn some areas. You know, you talk about putting smoke on an interstate or a major highway or in, you know, in the, in the you know, uh, urbanized areas where you got people with emphysema that are on oxygen or something, and that smoke gets in there. I mean, you know, the phone goes ringing off the hook every time there's a controlled burn when you get into heavily populated areas. A lot different than at Barber County WMA, because shoot, you're talking about 30,000 acres, and that's a rural area of Barber County. And you can burn like crazy in those places, you know, if you've got a good good forester and, and a, got a good burn plan. But you move up here to West Central Georgia and you get here in the metro Atlanta, it gets more difficult. The planning and the preparation and the timing and wind direction, so many different things going to factor then. Obviously, you know, I, I wish we'd burn everything we've got, but it's just sometimes you, you can't. Timing's not right. The, the conditions aren't favorable. And sometimes you miss those windows and, you know, you miss a spring burn window uh, for weather issues or for whatever reasons you're talking about 365 days before it rolls around again so you know you miss those opportunities and and, and i feel like the habitat suffers for the timber productivity um and then of course you know wildlife species too so it's always better to burn in some cases we just can't brian you know you've had a lot of experience in different types of habitat work i mean today we're talking about controlled burns but you've done a lot with food plots i mean the whole idea here is that we're trying to improve habitat for wildlife. You know, if you were going onto a property and you were kind of setting things up in an order of importance with say food plots or supplemental feeding, where do controlled burns fit into your, um, your management plan? Is it at the very top or somewhere in the middle or, you know, how does that fit in? Where do you think it's most important? I think it's number one. I think that's where you start first. You know, I think you have to have a, uh, you know, have a good uh, wildlife action plan. And with that wildlife action plan, which every state has it, if you can work by those those guiding documents, the first thing they're going to start talking about is going to be um, habitat management. And fire is, is obviously, as we've spoken earlier, is the cheapest and the most effective effective tool we can use. I mean, you think of what it costs in order to plant a food plot. You think of what it costs to pour supplemental feed out of a bag. Those are costly 
it costs a lot of money to do that. And, and the habitat side is, is often overlooked uh, simply because people, uh, they think, well, we're just going to walk in here and first thing do is plant a food plot, and put up some supplemental feeders, whereas they, they overlook you know, the, the most important concept, and that's habitat management. And fire, first and foremost, you work with a, a good forester or a, or, a, or a state biologist you know, or a certified wildlife biologist, they're going to recommend fire. I promise they are. But they're going to look at that habitat, and they're going to look where it's at, stage of growth. They're going to look at a lot of different things to determine if fire can be used. But if it can be used, it's going to be on top of the list every time. I promise you that. Carl, you know, there on the WMA, you guys are burning a lot. Do you see in the areas that you burn, that next hunting season or that next year after that burn, do you see a lot more wildlife activity in those areas versus the areas that have not been burned recently? Yeah, some of that has to depend on the timing of the burns. Uh, you know, it's kind of like Brian said, a lot of the burning is happening now, you know, just prior to turkey nesting. And so, of course, you see a lot of bump in, in turkey activity in those areas. And if you're hunting or you're just in the areas in general, when that green flush comes back out, you'll see a lot more you know, deer movement, browse and stuff like that. We're trying to lean towards some more fall burning to get that late flush of growth, um, you know, in October, early part of November, and see how that's going to work out. There's been some research out. It's not recent, but a lot more recent that showing that that's some of the better times to burn if what you're looking for is improving deer activity in those areas. Hey, Carl, let me ask you this real quick. You know, those those fall burns, you know, you know typically – late summer early fall you know when your sap's going down on your on your trees trees you know like sweet gums and invasive hardwoods starting to go dormant how does that do you think that the you think that the the fire has more you get a better kill ratio on those invasive uh sweet gums uh, in on a fall burn versus a a spring burn what's your thoughts on that personally what i've seen we do uh, it's really a late growing season burn basically because I would say the majority of the time we're doing these burns in the fall, we're doing them right at the end of October. You know, as soon as we get our food plots planted, we'll start burning. You know, depending on the weather, we may spend two or three weeks, and that's all we do. But we definitely see better control of hardwood species in, in those late-growing season burns. Yes, sir. Yeah, like Brian said earlier, most of the burning that's done now has been done from January late February, maybe even early March, where all the trees and grass are dormant, you know, minus you know, whatever few you know, winter grasses you might have, which aren't going to be very prevalent in a wooded stand. But you know, in the growing season, of course, everything's still got leaves or it's green. And, you know, all, you're burning the tops out, but that's where all your nutrients are at that point versus your dormant season burns where everything's pulled down under the ground. And that late season, growing season burn, like I said, it just seems to be a little more effective in overall kill of their undesirable species. You know, I would say we deal more with um, things like sweet gum, uh, water oak, things like that. That's more the target species that we're trying to eliminate. We do have some that you mentioned, but they're in smaller pockets. So, you know, I, I can't speak 100% to the effectiveness on, on those in particular, but it I does seem overall we have a better kill ratio. With all this being said, I mean, you see the benefits of 
doing a controlled burn, I think it's pretty easy to see. And we're talking to people just basically across the board to say, hey, this is the fundamental piece of habitat management that each property needs. Carl, why aren't more people doing it? I mean, is it lack of knowledge? Are they scared? What do you think is holding people back from doing this? I think it's some of both. You know, burning even in a small setting is can be a daunting task if you if it's not something that you're used to doing. And don't think that people realize that there's the ability to go out and get a little more educated on this stuff, whether it's through your local extension, our department, the Forestry Commission. There's so many ways to gain access to to prepare yourself to be able to do it. It's not an easy thing, you know, by any stretch, but it's not, I wouldn't say it was any harder than going out and filling up 15 or 20, 3, 400 pound feeders, you know, in the back, you know, as far as work goes. And I think it'd be much more beneficial overall. But yeah, I, I think you get a lot of misconception about it because uh, you said earlier we were talking about the fires out west and seeing those kind of things. That's a whole different ball game out west than it is here. But that's the fires that everybody hears about. Right. Well, if somebody wants to start burning, they, they see it, you know, they've seen the light now and they're ready to, they're ready to do a burn on their property. How do they get started? What's the first thing they need to think about? Is it safety? Is it timing? Is it site prep? What do they need to think about first? My opinion would be coming up with a burn plan. All, all your, your variables go together that you were kind of listing there. I don't know that there's one that's way more important than the other, but you can't go without knowing all of them. Just for instance, you've got what kind of fuel, how much fuel, what are your weather conditions? Like Brian said earlier, are you going to be burning near a road? Then you really have to start taking in your wind consideration and um, things like dispersion, which is where you're, how quickly your smoke is going to get out of an area and where it might settle. So you start taking all that in consideration. You can get your hands on a Real simple burn plan. It, they generally all have an area that lists those kind of things so you can kind of check them off as you go. As far as setting up that plan, I mean, on let's say you've got a few hundred acres or a thousand acres, whatever you've got, you don't typically want to burn the entire track in one year. How do you suggest breaking that up? Or do y'all do or aim at doing a portion of the property to have some form of rotation every year, every few years? That would be the general idea is that you would want to break it up as best you can so that you're allowing yourself to burn something every year. You know, of course, the bigger the track, the easier that is to do. And sometimes, especially up here on the WMA, I know we let geography and, and topography kind of play a role in some of that, which, like I said, we're dealing with almost 30,000 acres. So a 200-acre block, isn't really that big on the grand scheme of things here, but you know, we might let a road, one of our interior roads and a creek be our boundary. But if you know if you're working inside a few hundred acres, it may be where you have to get a bulldozer in and, and cut some lines and some lanes and widen your roads a little bit so you can do this kind of stuff and, and break it up into segments. What about your ages as far as loblolly versus longleaf is when y'all are typically starting your burn plan? Longleaf, you know, you're you're basically right out of the gate, you know, a couple years in, three years in, and you're you're on your first burn, and then you're most common. We burn up here on a, on a two or three year rotation, you know, on let's say lob and slash. 
you're looking at not burning for the first 14, 15 years until you get them thinned, unless you just have some smaller blocks and you're going to be really, really careful. That's right. I always, I heard a, a good phrase from Ted DeVos on especially long leaf. He said, some people get a misconception on it. They said, uh, it's fire resistant. It's not fireproof. And, uh, We've seen to been to a few properties around here where everybody thinks you can just constantly drop a match in the long leaf and it'll be okay. That's true. And and you know, if if you if you balance that long leaf system out right, you're gonna wind up with a lot of grass, which means you're gonna wind up with a lot of really combustible fuel. So yeah, they're not definitely not fireproof, but yeah, you can put them to the test pretty quickly. Well, you know, creating a burn plan, obviously, like you say, that that's step number one. And within that burn plan, there's going to be site prep considerations. I, I would, I would think, right, Carl? Yes. You know, we, I was talking about just a minute ago, you'll have fire lanes to put in. You have to take in consideration fuel, uh, your wind direction, humidity. I know we talked about Ted DeVos. I think he told a friend of mine the other day, a couple of weeks ago, or was it last week? That was the lowest humidity he's ever burned in. And, was down to 15 and 16 percent if you're not careful when it gets down that low everything will go up there's just so many factors involved but that's some of the main ones you have to be lined up before you get started well brian i want to go back to something you said earlier because i see a lot of it and that is properties that haven't been burned and they've got a what you called a mid story so these trees and these shrubs and uh, you know, that they've gotten up to the point where you're going in and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're going in and mechanically removing that mid story, because I mean, is it in a, in a situation like that, is a fire not gonna, is it going to be too hot if you burn or is it just not going to burn because there's, it's too dense, too dense size of the trees. You start talking about a, you talk about a six inch, four to six inch sweet gum, they're hard to kill especially if they're starting to get some height on them. I mean, I've got a 75-acre track over here we burned last year, and we only got about 20% kill. Now, we burned again in the, in the fall of the year when, when Carl was, was talking about, you know, uh, you know, obviously when you're, you're basically burning in the dormant part of the season when those trees are dormant, and basically we're burning fuel uh, that's, that's, that's on the ground, you know, leaf litter, pine straw, you're, you're burning some shrubs, you're burning some trees, smaller trees. But when you start talking about there's – those bigger trees that are four to six inch DDH, some of those, a lot of those trees will never, fire's not going to, not going to affect. And there's only several ways to, two ways I know of to reduce that competition at that point is to either mechanically, uh, because it's non merchantable material, obviously, um, you can't harvest it for timber, you know, uh, you know, it is, you know, merchantable wood, merchantable timber. So you either mulch them or mechanically masticate or, or herbicide. And, you know, the immediate is mastication, but what a lot of people don't understand, and you gotta, you gotta make clear to, to a landowner, and of course our state agencies and federal agencies work with understand it completely, that just because you mow that stuff down, it's no different than mowing your grass, it's gonna come back. And a lot of times you get in with that, you come in there with that, with that mulcher and you start mowing that down and they think, oh, it's instant, it looks great. Well, those, those, those gums and those, those invasive hardwoods, they come back with vengeance, you know, privet, gum especially come back with vengeance so you got to be prepared to either come back with fire uh, before they get back up big again or come back in there with herbicide 
uh, mow it, keeping a mode. Um, you know, I like coming in with a trickle pier after, after, you know, you get that re-sprout, uh, and get some good foliar growth back on it and then kill that gum and then do it in the fall of the year when the sap's going down again. That's when you get your best chemical burn on something like that and then come back in the, in, in February, uh, or March and then run a fire through it. And then at that point, you're releasing all that weed seed, the grasses, the forbs, all that good, all the good groceries, I call them, will start coming back. So, you know, every every property is different, and it's all site-specific. And you can't prescribe anything without actually going in there and physically looking at it and determining what's the best plan and look at several different options because, obviously, the mulching is a high-ticket item. There's no question about it. To run a 350-horsepower mulcher, you know, you're, you know it, it's, 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 it's expensive, but it's, it's instant. I say instant, you're getting that material on the ground, but there is going to be maintenance after that as well. Well, and what I've run into with, with longleaf stands, especially when your chemical is not an option at a younger age and you've got a lot of loblolly blow in or those other species, you don't want through the sweet gum, uh, you know, depending on where we're talking about, it could be anything from yopon to privet to whatever you've got. And, you know, fire might work, but it's just, you know, you may spend five to 10 years letting fire work where you could just get in there and mulch or mow it down and, yeah, it may cost a little bit up front, but you've saved yourself a decade of time, and then then you True. can get to work with the fire. Yes, sir. And I think too, you you know, you're talking about talking earlier about the benefits to wildlife, the benefits to the timber, the benefits from a safety perspective. If you try to do all this in arrears, it's going to cost you <laughs> more than if you just burn on a regular rotation, and you're not going to be getting the benefit of that wildlife habitat along the way so there's no doubt that it's an important tool fundamental tool but if this is still just too much for someone a lot of landowners are going to say yeah i mean that sounds great but i'm still not going to do that and they want to step in and have someone take care of this for them what kind of options are out there for the landowner who says can I just hire this out? I mean, how would you recommend? I'm going to open that up to either of you guys. I mean, you know, Brian, obviously you guys are involved on all different types of habitat management products and, and could help a landowner get this established. So maybe we just start with you. If, if a, a landowner says, I want to burn my place, what what are they going to be doing to get that set up if they don't want to be involved? Well, I'm, I'm going to obviously recommend a forester uh, who's licensed and insured put them in contact with somebody who is, who's a professional. I mean, I'm big about hiring people that are professionals, you know, um, just because you own a piece of property doesn't make you a burn expert, you know? So I won't be sure that I explain to that landowner, Hey, you know what? It might be better for you to hire an expert, hire, hire a forester, hire the, you know, Georgia forestry commissioner, Alabama forestry commission, come in, get on their list, let them come in there and get your brakes plowed. They'll know when to burn, how much to burn, wind directions they'll they'll take in every every one of the considerations that carl and clint both have, we've talked about they're going to take in every one of those considerations and then it takes liability off a lot of the liability not all the liability but it takes a lot of the liability off the landowner at that point and then and a lot of times as a private landowner you know you got a money through friday job you may need to be burning on a tuesday and you're up there in tuscaloosa you know working your day job or, or wherever you may be and the timing may not be it may not work into your in, in your schedule to be able to do it so there's a real benefit to hiring a professional, somebody's an expert at their trade, somebody that's licensed and insured. They'll come in there and, and, and ensure that they'll do a good job. They'll protect 
the resource, they'll protect the environment. And I think that that's right there is, you know, from a private landowner standpoint, uh, there's a lot of benefit to, to hiring a professional to come in and, and help set up, uh, drop a burn plan and then implement it. Carl, I'm a pyromaniac, so I'm, I'm going to be wanting to get out there and get involved and, and be the one lighting her up, so to speak. But, it, it, you know, I don't have the experience that someone like you has. If I wanted to become a burn manager, I wanted to really get involved and get in there, get my hands dirty. What kind of options are out there for people that, that want to be there, want to be on the burn? Well, you know, there's a class where you can go and get your burn certification to be a burn manager. I think it's a four-day class now. It's taught, I think, the closest one to us here in Barber is up in Auburn. And, you know, with the environment we're living in now, I don't know how how many they're going to do and how many seats will be available, but it's a good place to start. They've got good instructors that can kind of run you down the, the very basics of it and give you an idea. But it would be my personal advice to someone that has never burned very much but really wants to get in is that you might want to seek out a forester and somebody that does it a lot and just maybe have them come burn your place but work out something where you're there with them and you're actually doing some of the work. It doesn't take much to, to figure it out. I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but I don't want to overcomplicate it either. But if, if, you, can, if you can do a little bit of it, it and you have a little bit of equipment, you can manage a, a good bit of uh, you know, prescribed burning on your own. Guys, what about permitting? I mean, you know, Brian, you're, you're involved in habitat management work all over the Southeast. And I know it can vary state to state with regards to if you've got to pull a permit. And I don't really want to get into the legalities and, and should you or do you have to get permits. But what I would say is, should you get a permit? I mean, Carl, do you guys pull permits when you're, uh, you know, burning on public land? And, and why does somebody need to pull a permit? Yeah, we, we always pull permits, and that's that's across the board for all the WMAs and public land that we help burn on. And the benefit to that is you're allowing your forestry commission, your local guys with the equipment, to come in and help you. If something does go awry and you've got a fire that gets out and you can't control it, they know exactly where you are. They're already aware of your fire, and it just gives you a little – little comfort too to know that there's somebody that knows where you are and what's going on that can come through aid if you had to have it. Well, Carl, I, I appreciate you joining us today, man. And you've really shared uh, a lot of your insight and, and I know you've got a lot of experience with, uh, with controlled burns. If folks want to check out the Barber WMA and see the progress you guys are making with wildlife management and habitat management using controlled burns as a tool, tell us a little bit about the Barber WMA. Well, we're located in basically the middle of nowhere, but just outside of Clayton, Alabama, it's about 10 minutes away. And we're approximately 30,000 acres at this point. And we do, we, we burn from year to year, somewhere between 1,200 and 2,000 acres a year um, on a rotation, generally about three years. And we have covered just about everything as far as wildlife goes, especially hunting. We have all the small game hunting. Um, we have one of the highest quail counts in the state on our WMA. Um, we have deer hunting, of course, uh, which is our main pool in January. And uh, we have turkey season just right around the corner. The turkey population is looking up here. 
like I said, it's 30,000 acres, so we got plenty of room and uh, we got plenty of guys that work up here, got a good staff, and we'll do everything we can to accommodate whoever decides they want to come. Well, Brian, I know you are involved in, like we say, lots of different habitat work across the southeast. Before we go, if folks want to get in touch with you, I, I think your insight of being able to look at a property and decide, obviously, you're going to want to burn, but is it the right move right now? If folks want to get up with you and have you take a look at their property, see if a burn is the right move or maybe something needs to be done to get control of that understory before you do, what's the best way for them to reach out to you and tell us a little bit about where you cover? Our coverage is from Georgia all the way to, to Texas. We've worked uh, all, all throughout the southeast. We, uh, are, we specialize in, in me- mechanical uh, habitat restoration. Like I said before, we work closely with the state and federal biologists and uh, private biologists on formulating the plan, which is which is going to be best for the uh, for the landowner for the resource, and uh, trying to target what uh, what what species they're trying to manage for, obviously. But you know, we uh, we've got really good equipment. We we've got big, powerful equipment that's made to be in made to be in the woods. It's specialized forestry motion equipment, 300 horsepower or bigger. We've got really good operators that are in really trained well over the years. Blessed with very good operators that have been trained well to, uh, you know, to, to to learn what we need to what we need to be clearing, what we need to take, what we need to leave, because every project is, is site specific. So, uh, but I, I work hard with a landowner and with state and federal agencies to look at each property to determine what the best mode of action is and what. Uh, what what kind of treatment plan? And obviously, you know, fire. Like I said in the beginning, is 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 the cheapest and probably the, one of the greatest benefits. But in some cases, we have to use this mechanical methods in order to be able to 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 get that understory to a point where fire can can start being a benefit again. They can reach me at uh you know on my cell phone number. They can go to our website www.brushclearingservices.com or reach you know, reach me on my cell phone seven zero six. Clint, you know, today we're talking about controlled burns for deer and turkey habitat, and obviously it's benefiting everything, small game, quail, it's it's benefiting everything, benefiting the timber. What about selling your property? I mean, when you see these properties that have been burned, they've got fire breaks in place, everything's being managed that way, and, and there's good, there's good evidence that the property's on a, a good rotation of controlled burns. How does that help you to market a property and, and, and sell it? Well, first and foremost, it shows a high level of care by the seller. You know, people like to buy well-managed properties. And when you see that in place, you know, immediately you're dealing with somebody that's taking care of it. Uh, on top of that, your carrying capacity for the wildlife is a lot better. Your growth rate is typically higher on tracks that are in a rotational burn program. You know, I think University of Georgia noted that it was about a 10% return on growth per year, you know, for the reasons that we mentioned about the competition reduction plus nitrogen release, things like that. And, and then on top of everything, it's just prettier. Yeah. Uh, and that, that carries a lot of value. You know, that's like looking at a house that needs a paint job versus one that doesn't. And you just, you just feel better about it when you see it and it's well-kept and burned and aesthetically pleasing. Well, we talk on here a lot about, the highest and best use of a property and 
you know, I mean, if a property goes from being timberland to being residential property, the price increases a lot. And typically, I see in my market that if I'm selling a property that has a recreational component, it's going to sell for a better price per acre than just a straight timberland track. So when you think about fire from that perspective, you really are using it as a tool to take a property from being what otherwise would just be raw land to having a, a higher and better use, which is going to lead to better, better property values down the line. That's right. It, uh, it literally helps people see the forest for the trees. Well, folks, I hope you're going to get out in the woods this weekend and enjoy some turkey hunting. I know I'm going to be out there and uh, as season's starting in Alabama and in Florida. If you're out there, please be safe as always. And that is going to wrap it up for us this week. We want to make it easy for you to listen as soon as a new show is ready. So here's a handy option for you. To get the podcast emailed to you each week, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377 to join our email list. And as always, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Hope you guys stay safe out there. We will talk to you next week. This week's Hunt and Land podcast has been brought to you by First South Farm Credit. First South Farm Credit can help you finance or refinance that perfect piece of land. To find out how First South can help you, visit their website at firstsouthland.com or call them at 800-955-1722. They are an equal housing lender. And also brought to you by Brush Clearing Services. Check out their full line of property and land services at brushclearingservices.com or call them at 706-718-1690. And also SunSouth. Own the best for less. Visit SunSouth for quality John Deere equipment you've been dreaming of or visit sunsouth.com. SunSouth for those that do. And also, Bucks Island Marine. They have new pontoon boats, bass boats, bow riders, and aluminum boats for sale. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. You can visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And also brought to you by Farm Credit of Northwest Florida. For over 100 years, they've helped people just like you explore your options so you can apply with confidence and get started living your dream in the country. Check them out at GoRural.net or give them a call at 855-GO-RURAL. This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Baia and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. Bottom line, we know land, and now is a great time to buy or sell. Want to know why? Shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND. And also buy Great Days Outdoors magazine. Great Days Outdoors magazine guides you on hunting and fishing south of the Mason-Dixon. Become a better southern hunter and angler and pick up your copy today wherever fine magazines are sold or save online at greatdaysoutdoors.com.